I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm joined by Anna Della Subin, the author of Accidental Gods, a history of men inadvertently turned into deities. She has a piece in the latest issue of the paper on the ancient Sumerian poet, princess and priestess, Enheduanna. It's a review of Enheduanna, the complete poems of the world's first author by Sophus Heller. Hello, Anna Della, and thank you very much for talking with me today. Hi, Tom. It's great to be on the podcast. So the subtitle of the, the book under review of Sophus Haller's book describes Enheduanna, if I'm pronouncing any of those words correctly, as the world's first author. But before we get on to what that means precisely, perhaps you could just tell us a bit about what we know of her life. Who was Enheduanna and when and where did she live? So Enheduanna was a Sumerian princess who lived around 2300 BCE. Um, she was the daughter of Sargon of Akkad, who is said to have created the world's first empire when he forced dozens of city-states stretching from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean to acquiesce to his rule. Um, and so acts of empire building and colonization so often play out not just at the level of land and territory, and politics, but also in the space of what we would call religion or divinity. Um, and so as an imperialist act, Sargon installed his daughter and Hedwana as high priestess over the temple to the moon god in the city of Ur, which was one of the city-states he was trying to subdue in what is now southern Iraq. And so temples then as now were institutions of great power and wealth, and Enheduanna took control over the community as a usurper. So she managed the daily affairs of the temple, and she also wrote poems which attempted to accomplish and verse what her father was doing with axes and spears as he built his empire. And so the temple that she was in charge of, it would have been sort of a community of, I mean, almost like a small town. People would have lived there, it would have been a more like a maybe not a small town but a monastery or a convent I mean it was a it was a, a lived-in community it wasn't as it were only a place of worship yes exactly so she she lived in what was called the Jepar, which was the residence of generations of priestesses um, and she lived there as kind of an invader and then she oversaw a whole community of attendants fellow priests um and she presided particularly over organizing daily sacrifices to the gods. And her name, as you say in your piece in the, in the paper, that it was given to her when she became the priestess. So we don't know what her birth name would have been? Yes, exactly. So her birth name is unknown. Um, and Hedwana is like uh, an epithet, meaning high priestess who is the ornament of heaven. 
And her father, Sargon, um, Sargon, it, it seems unlikely that Sargon had come from a royal family or a ruling dynasty. He, he seems to have come from very humble origins. And so he deeply needed to create a sense of legitimacy for his empire. And so he gave himself the name, meaning the king is legitimate, which is just the kind of name that a king who's worried about his legitimacy would give himself. Oh, and is that what Sargon means? Sargon means the legitimate yes. king. Okay, so we don't know what his yeah. name was before that either? No. Okay. And there would have been priestesses there before her? Yeah, so... She moved into a community in which generations of priestesses had lived. And the really interesting thing about the ancient Mesopotamian world was that the dead lived so close at hand to the living. Um, it was a common practice that that family members would be buried under the floors. Um, so in the priestly residence where she lived, all of these dead generations of priestesses who had came before her were actually buried um, underneath the floors that she walked on. And she would prepare food for them to, to nourish them in the afterlife. So it was very much a, a kind of living community of webs of kinship that totally go beyond our contemporary ideas of the living and the dead. And so where does her poetry fit into this? Would that have been part of the ritual that as well as preparing sacrifices and, and those those duties that she carried out was the poetry that she wrote? And is that even the way we talk about it? Is it writing or that she composed or how did her poems fit into her, her duties as a, as a priestess? Yes, so the form of the poems that she wrote are hymns. And there are three main poems that we have that have survived of Enhedwana. Um, there's the Exaltation to Inanna and the Hymn to Inanna. And then there's a collection called the Temple Hymns. And in the Temple Hymns, each poem is about a particular temple in Sargon's empire and is kind of exalting it through verse. Um, and the hymn and the exaltation are devoted to the goddess Inanna. And Sargon was very concerned to wed his dynastic lineage to this divine goddess, um, Inanna. I'm sure we'll talk about her a little bit later, but she's also known as Ishtar and is one of the most famous goddesses of the ancient, the ancient Mesopotamian world. Um, and so, yeah, so Enhedwana was overseeing the affairs of the temple and she was writing hymns at the same time. I mean, we have evidence of her. I mean, there's this one of the amazing things that was discovered that you mentioned in the piece that we have her as well, her hairdresser's identity document. <laughs> and presumably that's quite an important... Being the hairdresser to the high priestess was presumably quite quite an important <laughs> job. Um, it really made me start to think about famous relations between writers and their hairdressers, but... I never got much beyond Benjamin Moser tracking down the creator of Susan Sontag's stripe. <laughs> um, so we have, so there is this archaeological evidence for her 
existence as as a person she was a she was a real person we know that she's a very important person um and we have all these poems attributed to her so but how do we know that she is the the author of of the poems that she's said to have written yeah so that is a very interesting question um so First of all, Enhedwana's poems are signed, as it were, with her name as author. Um, in one poem, she says the weaver of this tablet was Enhedwana, um, or elsewhere she speaks and says, I am Enhedwana. Um, and so this claim that Enhedwana was the author circulated widely for centuries. The poems survived because they were copied out. Um, by generations of scribes, particularly in the old Babylonian period in which Enhedwana was on the curriculum in schools. But it's very possible that the poems were just attributed to Enhedwana at a later date or that she had had a ghostwriter because she was so busy in the temple um, or that they're not the work of a sole author. And philologists have tended to tread carefully because the first surviving cuneiform tablets that or the earliest surviving cuneiform tablets are date to 500 years after her death. But as Sophus Hella quite compellingly lays out in the book, ultimately it's the attribution of Enhedwana's authorship that matters. It was important to the Babylonian scribes that she was recognized as author as such. Um, and this is the earliest claim to authorship that we have, making her, um, you know, what Hell calls in his subtitle, the world's first author. And this is also the idea of the author as a as a figure, as so, so it's not just the person who wrote the poems, as it were, but the idea of a, of an author with an authorial identity and an, an authorial voice. It's kind of the idea of the idea of the author. Yes, exactly. As Hell writes. It is in the poetry of Enhedwana that the idea of the author is born. That's the claim that he makes. I mean, one of the things that's quite easy, to, well, easy for me to forget is the is the huge timescales. Because as you say, if she lived around 2300 BC and the earliest copies of the poems we have are from around 1800 BC and that 500 year gap, that's... You know, that's a greater gap than between Shakespeare and us, and you know people <laughs> disagree about Shakespeare's or well, perhaps perhaps not seriously. But there is, the, but they those questions of authorship and the idea of the author. I mean, that gap between Shakespeare and us, or between Homer and Aristotle, I guess that's the same sort of that sort of five hundred year gap. And it's very easy looking back over these long distances, saying, "Well, it was four thousand years ago." That you can sort of telescope those times. Because even even the language that she her poems are in was, as it were, in a dead language by the time the tablets that we we that survive were written. Right, exactly. Um, so Sumerian becomes a dead language by the time of the old Babylonian period, kind of like Latin, um, where it's the language of erudition and liturgy and cultural prestige. Um, but you know, I think going back to your earlier comment. It really gets at something about the nature of authorship itself, which is that, you know, looking over the vast distances of us to Shakespeare, us to Enhedwana, um, and even in contemporary authorship today, we can never really know for sure whether something is created by a certain single mind. 
authorship is always a kind of secret pact with the reader who has to take it on faith that there's some sort of mystical relationship between the name of the author and the text that they will never fully grasp um, or understand how it came about. And I think also on a maybe less esoteric plane and Hedwana's authorship just reveals the obvious fact that the author is always a kind of collective product, a knitting together together of many different voices and minds, um, whether it's the writer, the editor, the translator, the copy editor, and the reader itself. And so we see this kind of collectivity in the figure of Enhedwana. And, and you've already mentioned that, that bit where she says this tablet was woven by Enhedwana. So the idea of, of of weaving as writing and, and weaving as a and both as a kind of craft but as also as a knitting together of different well different strands and different strands of authorship I suppose I mean you refer to manuscripts and it's quite interesting to think of a, a clay tablet as being a manuscript because I don't know somehow if you say the word manuscript makes me think of paper or possibly papyrus but obviously it just it means written by hand and the we have these clay tablets with the cuneiform writing pressed into them I mean, there's a the the physicality of the of of the um, of the written object is quite different. Yeah, and it's it's thanks to the material, the fact that these poems were preserved on clay, that they survived over such such a vast distance in time. And it struck me that visually, the look of the cuneiform writing on the tablets has the texture of a woven basket just like the um the image of weaving in the poem which then becomes the kind of central metaphor of literary creation um and which is woven into our english word text which has a cognate in textile from the latin texere to weave and what was the tool i mean cuneiform it means wedge-shaped is that right so you and it was as this sort of and if trying to describe what cuneiform writing looks like, I mean, they're sort of triangles, almost sort of slightly curved triangles with an extended one, the point slightly extended. I mean, and how, how are those marks made in the clay? What tool did they use to, to make those marks? They were made with a stylus, um, which was made out of reeds, which is also the same material um, as baskets were made out of. I mean, I mean, another amazing thing is, I mean, not only that these poems survived in physical form but that people nowadays are able to read them I mean if it was a dead language in 1800 BC when the but when it were when the Babylonians were were copying it how are we able to read to read it now yeah so there was about a thousand four hundred years in which Enhedwana's poems were completely lost um you know buried in the sands of time And it was in the 1920s, in the wake of an uprising against British colonial rule in Mesopotamia, that British team of archaeologists unearthed the ruins of Ur. This was led by Leonard and Catherine Woolley. And they unearthed many cuneiform tablets and the famous disc of Enhedwana, which depicts her presiding over a sacrifice. But then even even the archaeologists didn't really know what they had found. And 
they didn't think anything more than Hedwana that except that she was Sargon's daughter. Um, and it was only in the late 60s that the first critical edition and the first translation was published by two philologists. And then occasionally feminist writers would kind of notice and point out that the earliest known author was a woman. But it's it's been a very slow and still unfolding process of bringing Enhedwana's poems into the light. Yeah, because there is still, I mean, as it were, when I was at school, it was, you know, we learned that, as it were, Hesiod was the first writer who you, who put himself in his poems. And we kind of have, the, these are poems by a person with a name and we know where he lives and we he puts these facts about himself in his poems and he declares himself to be the author and there was this idea that you know that he's writing around more than a thousand years later than than Enhedwana sort of was the first author in that sense you know so that idea about Hesiod has has persisted long past the discovery of Enhedwana's poems why do you think that is why isn't why isn't she more famous so I think Sophus Hell's translation is going to bring about a great change in how Enhedwana is recognized. But up until this point, the only other translation of her poems for a general audience was done by this Jungian analyst with a strongly feminist bent. And in a way, she her translations didn't help the poems at all. She she translated um, and Hedwana and other Sumerian works in a kind of highly sexualized, racy language that really kept and Hedwana in a kind of naughty feminist corner and not in a not a, in a broader context that established her within what we call world literature. So I think that's one reason why Enhedwana isn't better known. Um, she hasn't traveled outside of Sumerology that far up until very recently. I think it's a really interesting moment to be reading and thinking about Enhedwana because she's kind of at this threshold between complete obscurity and origin myth. And now we're finding her increasingly name-checked in the first pages of new books. Um, so, for instance, the recent Family History of the World by Simon Seabag Montefiore has um, has a long bit about Enhedwana. And we're going to keep seeing Enhedwana more and more prominently invoked as our first literary ancestor. Yeah, I mean, you, in the piece, you use the phrase, I mean, you're possibly quoting... Hello, I can't remember, but you say our literary Eve, that sense of both being the first, but also being mythological. Maybe you could tease out that idea a little bit about what it what that idea would mean to be the, like our literary Eve. Yeah, so I think I'm actually the first person to call her that. Um, for better or worse, um, in the late 70s, the anthropologist Marta Weigel published an essay that called all women artists and writers as the sisters and daughters of Enhedwana. So that was very much a kind of starting point of that claim. But it struck me that much like Eve, Enhedwana is a kind of ambivalent character. 
She's implicit in acts of imperialism and war. There's a kind of original sin aspect to her, or you might say she even falls for the temptation of authorship itself. Um, I was kind of imagining the city of Ur as like an Eden, where we find not only the first authored poetry, but also the first known code of laws, which were written by a ruler called Urnama about two centuries after Enhedwana. And I should say Enhedwana lived a thousand years before the book of Genesis was even written down. But I think in calling her the literary Eve, I was thinking about how Enhedwana is in many ways a perfect myth. A myth is a story that is also a theory of how things came to be the way they are and what the future should hold. And so as a kind of feminist myth, and Hedwana seems to promise a future that restores many more female authors to the canon of world literature. And as for speaking to the past, she seems to uphold this claim that Sophus Hell makes, um, to quote him, that the concept of authorship began with a woman. And so, you know, I asked myself, is this true? Does the concept of authorship begin with a woman? Well, I'm not really sure. It strikes me as a kind of mythological thinking, as having a kind of Adam and Eve logic to it. Like, it's not biologically proven. It's very possible that there are earlier authors whose texts we haven't dug up yet or weren't preserved on such durable material. But Enhedwana can be our literary Eve if we, as writers and critics, make her into it, um, exalting her as we've done for Homer. But also writing this piece made me think a lot about the relationship between literary criticism and mythography. So I was so struck by this feeling that to write about Enhedwana was to actively participate in the making of her myth, you know. Um, but then again, like, aren't critics supposed to be the opposite of myth makers? I'm, I'm the well. first to call Enhedwana <laughs> our literary Eve. So is this a total failure of me as a literary critic? <laughs> or am I getting at something about the nature of criticism that's always there? I don't know. I feel like we need to call in Marina Warner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's an interesting question. Well, I'd, well, I mean, I suppose one of the things that literary cri criticism does is it does make claims about which writers we should be reading and paying attention to, doesn't it? But maybe could you read some of her poems for us? And then we could maybe in Sumerian and then in English for those of us who, those few listeners who won't understand the Sumerian, if you can read in English as well. And then maybe we could talk a bit more closely about the poems themselves. Sure. So I think I'll first just read a couplet in Sumerian so we can hear the rhyme and then I'll read a bit um, from the hymn to Inanna so we can really get into the nature of the poetry itself. Okay, so so this couplet is from the temple hymns. Nunzu amgal amsiani shehula, sumun simu simushani sehula. And I should note that um, there's no, there's still no agreed upon way in which Sumerian is pronounced, and even no fully agreed upon dictionary yet. So I can't say that I've read that correctly, but no one really knows for sure. No um, one can say you've got it wrong either. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 
Self as Hell translates those lines as, Your Lord is a great wild bull, an elephant delighting in his might, an aurochs adorned with horns, delighting in his splendid light. Um, and the aurochs there was a kind of magnificent ox that used to roam the plains of Iraq um, and which went extinct. And I, I learned that scientists have been trying to resurrect this species, but no luck just yet. How did the, those poems work metrically? I mean, you've mentioned rhyme, but can we, if we can't know how it sounded, how can we know whether or not it rhymed? Mm, yeah, the rhyme, the rhyming also, from what I can tell, seems inconsistent. Um, Sophus Hell gave a, a great event at Harvard a couple of weeks ago where he read um, much more from the poetry. And it's hard for me to tell the meter exactly, but there is very much a kind of chanting, incantatory quality to the verses. So as it's a, I mean, it's called a hymn and it was for religious purposes. I mean, presumably it would have been, most people couldn't read or write and it would have been performed aloud, that it would have been sung or chanted in the temple and that these, they were hymns in the, you know, in that sense of, of hymns, that sort of very literal sense. Yes, exactly. And so as hymns, they were actually seeking to bring about something through the act of chanting them or singing them aloud. Um, so in many ways, much of the verse of Enhedwana can be seen as apotropaic. It's kind of working to avert tragedies, to kind of shift human fates. It participates in the genre of the ritual lament, which was a form in which priests would would invoke kind of horrific scenarios of all the terrible things that the gods could inflict upon humans in order to show that we recognize you're capable of this, so there's no need to actually bring about um, these tragedies. So, so it was trying to avert calamity. I'll read just a line. This is a line from the exaltation of Inanna, which, which has a kind of apotropaic force to it. An and Enlil are two other powerful gods. This city, let An crush it. This city, let Enlil curse it. Let its mothers not comfort their crying children. But when they sing their lamentations, my queen, then sail your boat of sorrow to another shore. It's quite beautiful. Um, so the context of the exaltation to Inanna, it recounts in a kind of autobiographical way, which makes Enhedwana's poetry arguably the first appearance of an autobiographical speaker. Um, but so they recount this drama in which a military general called Lugal An, who you might see as a kind of anti-colonial dissenter, um, stormed the temple and exiled Enhedwana and sent her off into the wilderness. And Enhedwana turns to the goddess Inanna for help to rescue her. So in the poem, 
the poem is is told in the first person, but then her poem proves so powerful that she actually is able to save herself through her verse and she's restored to the temple. So the poem actually has this kind of real efficacy. Um, and when she's restored to the to her temple, she switches into the third person as if kind of handing over the poem for others to recount and to tell of the goddess's power. Do we know if that reflects a, a historical event? I mean, what, was there a revolution in Ur and 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 Hedwana as the as it were the colonial governor imposed by her her father was overthrown and sent away, and then she came back and took the city back, and it was resubjugated by Sargon's forces. Or is that do we know if that happened, or is this this poem our only source for that story? It does seem likely to have happened. Archaeologists haven't found any corroboration in the material record for those events. But it's known that Sargon's empire and um, his successors faced numerous uprisings. And so it, it does seem like this event really happened. But there's quite a lot of disagreement about when and how. And kind of earlier scholars put these events much earlier in Enhedwana's life, that this happened to her around the age of 30. And Earlier scholars read a certain line in the poetry as insinuating that she was raped. And so in Simon Sebag Montefiore's recent book, he kind of spins this allegation of rape into a kind of Ovid-like um, primordial sacrifice of, uh, of a woman. Um, but Sophus Hell kind of pushes back against that version of the story and sees these events as occurring much later in Anhedwana's life and and um, reads the lines differently. But it's still very much contested territory about what happened. And she lived for quite a long time, didn't she? I mean, there's a bit, at least into her 70s. Yeah, that's, yes, that's, it seems that she, she did leave, live to be quite old. I think so... We know that after Sargon's death, then two of Enhedwana's brothers succeeded Sargon, and then both of them were killed off. And then her nephew, Naram-Sin, rose to power, and um, it seems pretty clear that the uprising that Lugal-An led happened during Naram-Sin's reign. And so if you add up all the years between all of those reigns, it puts Anhedwana into her 70s. Um, But we don't have any evidence of when and where she died. Um, And her tomb hasn't been uncovered yet, although they've excavated the building where she probably lies, but they haven't found her yet. And one of the poems that you quote in the in the piece, talking about her authorial voice, it says, I am Enhedwana, I am the high priestess. I carried the basket of offerings, I sang the hymns of joy. Now they bring me funeral gifts. Am I no longer living? Which is a curious poem, because the, spe- the speaker of that appears to be speaking from beyond the grave. So, re- I mean, reading it with a sort of a modern eye or ear, you would not think that the 
the author of that poem. The speaker is N. N. Hedwana, but you wouldn't necessarily think she's the author because she appears to be dead. It appears to be the voice of someone speaking from beyond the grave. But is that... Mm, yeah. I mean, how does that fit into that? I mean, you earlier talked about the Sumerian relationship between the living and the dead being much closer, that you know they buried the dead under the... They lived above the graves of their ancestors and there's sort of a different idea of the relationship but is that poem is that Enhedwana imagining her own death or is it someone else ventriloquizing her after her death I mean obviously these questions can't be definitively answered but it's um... yeah so that that line has that kind of wonderful double register to it um, within the narrative arc of the poem, she's not actually speaking from the grave. Um, she's speaking more from her exile and saying, you think I'm dead? <laughs> you left me for dead. Um, you know, I love how much attitude and indignation there is in her voice, um, even coming to us 4,000 years later. Um, and that's also thanks to Sophie's Hell's translations. Um, but so... But then at the same time, from our perspective, she is speaking to us um, from the dead. And it really struck me that, you know, those webs of kinship that cross the boundaries between the living and the dead that I mentioned, you know, with the dead under the floorboards, it's so much like relationships between authors across time you know like we find these kind of webs of kindred literary affinity and then we nourish the dead authors that we love and we kind of keep them alive um, whether it's through quoting them or homages um, just this kind of literary work of tending to the dead that writers do as you say in the piece that as a as a priestess she didn't have children um but in the poems there is that makes the comparison between the creation of books and the creation of children and i remember jenny diskey was always um very insistent that having children and writing books were really nothing nothing at all alike <laughs> um, but it is one of those tropes for want of a better word that gets used a lot the you know the idea of different kinds of creativity and it's interesting that these metaphors for literary creation are as old as as literature if this is the oldest literature we have and the, these ideas that childbirth weaving building writer's block all these ways that writers think about their work were present four thousand years ago yeah so enhedwana often invokes these images of childbirth she says at one point queen lady for you i have given birth to it what i sang to you at dead of night let a lamenter repeat at midday um, and this metaphor of childbirth for literary creativity just becomes incessantly repeated over over the millennia. Um, and I completely agree with Jenny Diskey that they are nothing alike. Um, as someone who had a baby and published a book at the same time, <laughs> I have a lot of authority to speak on this. Um you know, the thing about pregnancy is that your body just knows what to do. You don't have to think about it. You create this kind of tiny human according to some script that unfolds inside of you, written by a higher power. And I don't think many writers would conceive of their process that way as something that just happens like a recipe <laughs> and you don't have to do any cognitive work. 
perhaps maybe some kind of surrealist forms of automatic writing. Um, so I don't know why this this metaphor is stuck around, but it is interesting that Enhedwana never actually gave birth to a child herself, um, only the poem. And how does her work, where does, it, where does the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, where does she fit into that story? I mean, Gilgamesh is much later, is it? Yeah, so Gilgamesh was composed over time um, by a series of many different composers, and then it was attributed to a single author at one point, but um, that seems kind of like a quite false attribution. Um, but Enhedwana, from what I can tell, is actually about 300 years earlier um, from than the earliest start date of Gilgamesh. So it's that in that way that, I mean, this endlessly keep going back that you know, people who thought Homer was the first, you go, but no, but there's Gilgamesh. And then before Gilgamesh, there was Enhedwana. And she presumably wasn't the first person to do what she was doing because it was, she, was, she was fitting into a, into a tradition that already existed, that there were temple hymns before her. So even though we don't have them written, there were presumably earlier poems even if they weren't earlier authors or poets and they're sort of this sense of the authorial identity yes so we do have poetry i think um as old as 500 years earlier than enhedwana um and in the temple collection some of the hymns are actually older than enhedwana so she's in the anthology she's not only writing new verses but she's compiling pre-existing verse um as well and then there are also a few later poems in that collection too um that were added to it so it it very much kind of roves across time um getting back to kind of the idea of the author that that it opens up I mean, in the way, the figure that she's, or a figure that she is similar to is is David in the Old Testament, you know, as the psalmist, and the way that a lot of the psalms, they're attributed to David, but, I mean, it's that same thing. So he was a, he was a figure from myth, he became the king of Israel, and he was also the author of, said to be the author of these poems, and, and his power as a, and his, you know, we're singing, calming calming Saul with his his singing and all the rest of it so I mean is that a reasonable comparison or is that just me reaching for my (laughs) no that's so interesting I I actually hadn't really thought about David um but I think no I think that that's right and I also it makes me think back to Hesiod um you know who we once thought was the was the creator of the first poetic persona um but he's actually 1,500 years later than Enhedwana. But there is also this really interesting connection between them because in Theogony, you know, Hesiod meets with the muses themselves on Mount Helion and they present him with a staff, which is the symbol of his poetic authority. And so both Enhedwana and Hesiod um, and David are showing how authorship unfolds in continuous reference to something supernatural, to something transcendent of the human condition. Their work unfolds in conversation with the gods um, and in devotion to the gods. And so so that is, you know, kind of a profound aspect of, of the nature of authorship itself 
as it comes down to us today. Um, but the other thing we haven't talked about yet is how Enheduanna was married to the moon. <laughs> Important part of her, yes. Indeed. I feel like so we, mi we somehow missed this, this crucial detail. In my piece, it's the first line of the piece. Um, but so so the, the first author, whose name we know, was married to the moon. Um, I feel that this is a very important fact for all authors to follow her. But so she served as the human embodiment of the moon god's wife, the goddess Ningal. And she would impersonate the goddess in rituals. Um, and so that's why she was forbidden from giving birth to children or from marrying any earthly male because she was already the spouse of a god. And the moon god also had a kind of interesting nature which was that he was in many ways a cow herder. Um, it was thought that the stars were actually Nana's herd of cattle, which he would shepherd across the sky, um, which is a quite beautiful image. Um, and the crescent moon was likened to Nana's horns. And the figure of the aurochs, who we mentioned before, was very much kind of one of the animals of Nana. But so, you know, marriage to the moon sounds so romantic, but it was actually a deeply imperialist gesture, a way for the family to legitimize their power by wedding their lineage to the divine. Um, and of course, this cowherder aspect immediately made me think of George Bush and his ranch in Texas and this connection between the kind of cattle ranching aesthetic and American imperialist power. But then Nana... In the, in the poem, The Exaltation of Inanna, proves totally inept as husband, and it's at saving Enhedwana from her exile, which is why she turns her devotion to the goddess Inanna. I mean, you can see why that appeals to feminist thinkers, that idea of the... <laughs> the inept husband. The inept, <laughs> the inept <laughs> male authority. Yeah, and I think this is... We haven't talked about Sappho yet, um, mm. But I think this is a really interesting contrast with Sappho, too. So, you know, Sappho, 1,700 years after Enhedwana, and Sappho is much more fragmentary than Enhedwana because the poems were preserved on papyrus and, and not on kind of durable clay. But Sappho, you would, you would draw kind of connections between them. Um, but Sappho is really writing or is really remembered for writing about erotic love and desire and and Hedwana, even though she's writing about devotion to a goddess she's not really on that kind of boundary between sacred and profane love she's more she's more about power you know she's trying to play power broker or a kind of kingmaker among the gods. So her poetry is kind of really, really deifying Inanna and imbuing her with all of these powers rather than expressing some kind of love. I really didn't get any sense of love from Enedwana's poetry, um, only what I call in the piece a kind of conviction in the desolation of war. Um, there is a kind of bloodthirsty hungriness there. Yeah. I mean, and you, you, you quote um, Sophus Hell sort of making a contrast between Enhedwana and Homer, but in many ways she sounds 
you know, much closer to Homer than than to Sappho. He says, here we are, what would the history of Western literature look like if it began not with Homer and his war-hungry heroes, but with a woman from ancient Iraq? But some of the bits, I mean, that's partly to overlook the, you know, the importance played by the the women in Homer. And also there's a bit which, one of the poems that you, you quote, and you say, um, Inanna getting ready for for war and you say she depicts the goddess as if getting ready for a night out that she wears war jubilant and beautiful she lays out the seven maces and that made, made me think of the, the bit in the Iliad where Hera is preparing herself to seduce Zeus in order to get him to do whatever it is she wants him to do and so in her sort of preparing herself for that is described in the same ways in which warriors getting ready for battle are described so that you know She's more like Homer than, uh, than, than perhaps it wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. doesn't make much difference if we, we begin with her than with Homer. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. There, and there is that kind of shared, like, militant quality to both of them. Um, I think going back to Sappho, there is what is really interesting, and this is kind of a product of accident but the ways in which the ellipses work in in both poets and Carson did such a brilliant job of rendering them in Sappho and Sophus Hell also in Enhidwana you know we find these chunks of missing text at such evocative moments in the poems. Um, so, you know, there's a verse about the wind in which the wind has carried off the rest of the poem. Um, or we find an abyss of missing text and then just a single word advice floating within it or many, many lines of destroyed text and then a single word calamity. And that is, you know, a, a kind of contemporary poetic layer that is is very much in Sappho as well. The kind of poetic power of of the absent lines. Anna Della, thank you very much. No, thank you. That was a lovely conversation. You can read Anna Della Subin's piece in the 8th of February issue of the LRB. There's a new issue out today featuring Marina Warner or Mary Magdalene, Barbara Everett on Hamlet and Henry VI, and Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite on Alex Comfort and The Joy of Sex, among many other pieces. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.